Welcome, Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens? Beautiful people everywhere. It's your girl, C.K. McGee, and I... your host. Hey everybody, it's so good to be back with you Village for a brand new season. Welcome to season four of Village Mentality. How are you? Have you all been all right? I pray that you're doing as well as you can be. So for all of you who are returning for another information-filled season where I talk about things that impact us as BIPOC communities, encourage self-care practices that can help to rejuvenate your spirit and soul so that you can continue to be the fantabulous kings and queens that you are, as well as looking at all of those topics that are discussed through a mental health perspective. Thank you guys for coming back to the village. Now, if you are a brand new listener, then welcome. And thank you for taking some time to check me out. And hopefully, you will make yourself comfortable with us here in the village every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, as new listeners, you may be wondering, why is this show called Village Mentality? And one should never assume that you understand. At least, that's what my mom taught me, right? Well, the inspiration for it came to me at the height of the pandemic in 2020. I witnessed so many people in different communities that had no problem stepping outside of themselves to help those within our communities that were considered to be the most vulnerable by showing compassion and love, by pulling together and performing acts of kindness for one another, coming to the table in their collective strengths to meet a common goal because we all know that there's strength in numbers, right? And I wanted to continue to remind us how much farther we can get in accomplishing those goals when we learn how to come together. Everybody has a purpose, a passion, or a talent that can be instrumental in the success of and for the village. Now, I'm also a mental health advocate with lived experience who's very much interested in and dedicated to bringing awareness to how the things that we face as communities of color can impact our mental health. And hopefully with that awareness, we can all learn to take better care of ourselves and each other, kicking stigma to the curb. You heard me? Now, I do not just talk, but with my vast love of music, Every episode is filled with music from my musical jukebox. And of course, this season will be no exception. So let's just jump on in with my first stroll of the evening to my musical jukebox. Now this was the seventh studio album by this iconic American singer. And it was released on April 24, 2001 by Virgin Records. The album's development and theme were rooted in her separation from her then husband. And she was ready to figure out for the first time 
what the world of dating was all about, honey. Now, unlike her previous album, which tackled darker issues like domestic violence and depression, this album showcased a mix of upbeat dance, pop, and slow R&B sounds, while incorporating rock, disco, and funk, as well as soft rock and oriental music. Its lyrics focus on passion, romance, and um, some other themes of an adult nature. I mean, I have to be careful. I don't know who's listening to my show and I wouldn't want any parents to get mad at me. <laughs> now the album received three Grammy Award nominations, including Best Pop Vocal Album, winning Best Dance Recording for its title track. It became her fifth consecutive album to top the Billboard 200 albums chart in the United States and it had the biggest opening week sales of her career. Here's the baby of the world famous musical family. It's Janet Jackson with All For You because Village, it is all for you.
That was the American duo, Daryl Hall and John Oates, Hall and Oates, with I Can't Go For That, <laughs> No Can Do, Honey. It was written by Daryl Hall and John Oates and co-written by Sarah Allen. The song was released as the second single from their 10th studio album, Private Eyes, which was released in 1981. The song became the fourth number one hit single of their career on the Billboard Hot 100, and it features Charles Tant on saxophone. Now, I Can't Go For That, No Can Do, is one of 14 Hall and Oates songs that have been played on the radio over one million times. Now, that is a lot of airplay. Young people today listening to music are not able to grasp the significance of those kinds of musical achievements. But that's why we're here, Village. Each one, teach one. You dig? Well, Village, you know me. I like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, whether it be about current events, entertainment, or something that's just on my mind. So why don't we get into my segment called Let's Talk About It. Now, just this past October, we lost another iconic historical figure by the name of Colin Powell. It mattered not whether you were Republican or if you were a Democrat, Black or white. His legacy is something to behold. He was born Colin Luther Powell on April 5th, 1937 in New York City, and he was raised in the South Bronx. His parents immigrated to the United States from Jamaica and he was educated in the New York City public schools and received a bachelor's degree in geology from the City College of New York. Shout out to CUNY. He also participated in ROTC at the City University, and he received a commission as an Army Second Lieutenant upon graduation in June of 1958. Upon graduation, he received a commission as an Army Second Lieutenant and at this time, the army was, ne was newly desegregated. He underwent training in the state of Georgia, of all places, wow, where he was refused service in bars and restaurants because of the color of his skin. Now, after attending, after attending basic training at Fort Benning, Powell was assigned to the 48th Infantry in West Germany as a platoon leader. Captain Powell served a tour in Vietnam as a South Vietnamese Army advisor from 1962 to 1963. And while on patrol in a Viet Cong held area, he was wounded by stepping on a punji stake, which is a type of booby trap. The large infection made it difficult for him to walk and it caused his foot to swell for a short time, shortening his first tour. Now, when he returned to Vietnam, he came back strong. He was a major, and that was in 1968. He was serving as Assistant Chief of Staff of Operations for the 23rd Americal Infantry Division. 
During the second tour in Vietnam, he was decorated with the Soldier's Medal for Bravery after he survived the helicopter crash and single-handedly rescued three others, including Division Commander Major General Charles M. Geddes from the burning wreckage, okay? Now in 18, excuse me, in 1968, I'm trying to bring him back in time, there were rumored allegations of the Malay Massacre which during an inquiry was described as, quote, soldiers actively hunted, herded, and killed elderly people, children, infants, and raped women, while other soldiers looked on and did nothing to stop the massacre, unquote. An estimated 350 to 500 unarmed civilians died, and Powell was charged with investigating these claims his assessment would later be described as whitewashing. Now, in an interview with the late Larry King in 2004, he stated, quote, I was in a unit that was responsible for melee. I got there after it happened. But in war, these sorts of horrible things happen every now and again, but they are still to be deplored, unquote. In his autobiography, My American Journey, Powell talked about one of his mentors that he was truly inspired by, General Henry Gunfighter Emerson, who insisted that his troops train at night to fight a possible North Korean attack. He actually made the troops watch repeatedly the film Brian's Song, which starred James Kahn and Billy Dee Williams in order to promote racial harmony. And let me tell y'all, if you have ever seen that movie village, I am certain that you will understand that it was a very effective way to promote racial harmony or else you're just not human. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Now, I could go on and on giving a list of all his military and political accomplishments because there are many. I will leave that to you to do on your own time though, beautiful people. I thought that it was important to look at who he was as a human and because of the career that he built within the military and in the political realm, he was highly respected, despite the fact that there were times where he made mistakes. For example, his speech before Congress, where he relayed that based on the intel that he received at that time, that he had in his possession, that there were weapons of mass destruction, and on his word, this country went to war. He acknowledged that the intel was in fact inaccurate years later and said that it was one of the biggest regrets. And then he went on to ensure that from then on, systems were put in place to improve the credibility of all future intel. He was married for over 50 years to Alma Donson and they had three children. On October 18th, 2021, General Powell, who was being treated for multiple myeloma, died at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center of complications from COVID-19 at the age of 84. He had been vaccinated, but his myeloma compromised his immune system. He also had early stage Parkinson's disease. President Joe Biden, and four of the five living former presidents issued statements calling Powell 
an American hero. Now that was in spite of the shortcomings or mistakes in his own words, the blot on his record that they still gave him that distinction. Now, I don't know about you beautiful people, but we're only human and we make mistakes. At times we fall short of the mark. I know that I have, I have a lot of time, but I have a great deal of respect for anyone who can own their mistakes and then live to make things better as a result. And that is who General Colin Powell was. And in speaking about one of the happiest experiences of his life, he said, quote, it was only once that I was in college, about six months into college, when I found something that I liked. And that was ROTC, which was the Reserve Officer Training Corps in the military. And I not only liked it, but I was pretty good at it. That's what you really have to look for in life. Something that you like and something that you think you're pretty good at. And if you can put those two things together, he said, then you're on the right track and just drive on, unquote. Well, General, we thank you so much that you chose to drive on. Thank you for leaving a legacy that we can both learn from and be inspired by. Rest in power, King, and thank you for your service. Okay, kings and queens, systematic and systemic racism. What is the difference? Now, this is something that was just on my mind, beautiful people. You know, I'm sure that you've probably heard people use these terms, and I have too, which is why I finally decided that I needed to understand what the difference was between those two terms, systematic and systemic. Now, on the website, without bull, it, I think you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> it states that Google shows 218 million hits for systematic and only 92 million for systemic. But things flip when applying the term to racism. There are 6 million hits for systemic racism and only 800,000 for systematic racism. Now, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, systematic is defined as relating to or consisting of a system. An alternate definition is methodical in procedure or plan. So you can imagine, for example, a systematic approach to editing a manuscript or a systematic approach to preparing a house for sale. Systematic implies a thorough series of steps that you follow. Now, systemic, on the other hand, means of or relating to or common to a system. Okay, that's systemic. That sounds a lot like the definition of systematic, but when you put it into the context of racism, the appropriate sub-definition is fundamental to a predominant social, economic, or political practice. 
where systematic applies to an approach, systemic applies to the system itself. Systemic is not related to a series of steps. It is a quality inherent in the system, not necessarily on purpose, but more, that's just the way it works. So let's take a look at how this applies to racism so that we both can understand this, right? We're all in this together, shoot. All right, so I'm gonna use an example of hiring because I think that we can all agree that racial bias in hiring is wrong, right? I mean, I hope so. Now, what would systematic racism in hiring look like? Well, it might look like this. Hiring managers explicitly reject resumes that appear to have black sounding or Latinx names. Now, in Freakonomics, you know that racist recruiters could pick out certain unique sounding names and reject them, right? If you've ever read that passage in Freakonomics, that's what it says. Recruiters can also reject resumes from historically black colleges and universities. Howard, Morehouse, Spelman, you know, Clark Atlanta, um, any of those uh, uh, universities and students that are coming from those schools, they'll immediately put those in file 13, I believe they call it, which is AKA the trash, right? Also, recruiters do phone screening and reject people that they believe sound black. Now, let me tell you guys, okay, this didn't happen to me, you know, with regard to a job, but it did happen to me once when I was looking for housing, right? Um, you know, I told you I'm born and raised. New York is, is you know, my home state, but at some point I moved to Massachusetts, uh, specifically to Boston. And I had come back to New York one year and I was working here for the summer. And my intention, of course, was to go back to Boston uh, by the fall. So I wasn't able to, because of my work schedule, go in person to see this house that I saw. I think it was like on Facebook or something. So I called and, you know, spoke to one of the guys that, you know, would have been a roommate of mine and, um, you know, wanted me to, he wanted me to call back to speak to another roommate, that I guess, you know, would be uh, somebody to decide yay or nay. All right. So I called back and I'm, you know, talking to both of them. And, you know, of course they're asking the regular questions or what have you. And I'm answering them. I'm talking, what have you. All right. So fast forward a couple of years, I'm in the house and um, only one of the two that I interviewed with remained in the house at that time. The other one had moved to a different state. Hmm. But I had experienced certain behavior from that one in the house that suggested that, you know, there might have been a little bit of a problem. Well, come to find out by the roommate that stayed, he said to me that after they got off the phone with me, that roommate asked him, do you think she was black? <laughs> and when he was telling me this, I was like, really? He's like, yeah. You, do you think she was black? And I was like, well, you know, what made him ask that question? And it was because of my name. Now, I use my initials for professional purposes, but because of my first name, he wondered if I was black. 
So I believe that the roommate that I was talking to that still was there said, no, I don't think she's black. <laughs> so imagine what happened when I showed up and guess what? I was black. So I don't really think that that guy that left was too happy that he was, you know, his suspicions were right all along. And um, I was able to kind of slide on in there, I guess, you know? So it does happen. It is a real thing, people. It is real. And if you think about it, you know, think back, has it ever happened to you, right? Now, also Black or Latinx people, they get shorter interviews and never get called back for hiring. You know that proverbial, don't call us, we'll call you? Mm. I bet you probably thought that just had to do with your your experience or lack thereof, when really it could have just been because you were Black or Latinx or a person of color, see? Now, we all know that such a hiring program would be offensively racist. And if you could prove such a program existed, you could probably sue the organization for racial discrimination. So now let's take a look at what systemic racism would look like in the same context. All right. So in this example, you might have like AI, you know, artificial intelligence, a system that's trained on past hire screens, resumes, right? And the system inherits the bias in past hiring and is therefore less likely to recommend resumes from minority candidates. Isn't that wild? Hmm. How about all the HR, you know, human resources staff, they're all white. And as a result, they are more likely to hire people that they feel comfortable with. That is, you know, people like themselves, you know, that is, you know, people who are white, right? Or you could have recruiters who do phone screening and hire people who they feel are most articulate, not recognizing that they are perpetuating their own prejudices in hiring based on their evaluation of the way others speak. That's another thing that I have also experienced. So I sound white, apparently. I sound white because I am articulate, I guess. Or maybe because when I was being interviewed, I wasn't like, yo, baby, yo, check it, check it. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Um, word. <laughs> I guess because I didn't do that, then the only other thing I could be was sound white. Because, I mean, Black people, we don't know how to speak or be articulate or anything, right? Now, how about noticing that all the pictures on a company's website are pictures of white people? Sending a clear message to any applicants that the company does not have any black or minority employees. No diversity here, folks. Nope. The company develops hiring relationships with universities that is their um, senior, you know, uh, management's alma mater, right? Where they graduated from. Universities where the students are for, far more likely to be like white, okay? So, if they're choosing from a university like Harvard, 
they better be careful. They might mess around and, you know, get someone like Malia Obama or Yara Shahidi. I mean, they went there and they're black. Now, their screening would also include a credit report, which generates bias against less affluent candidates from lower income families. So, you know, I don't know about you, but I always wondered about that because isn't the reason that I'm applying for this job because I want to improve my credit? You know, like, are you saying that when you look at my report and see like, wow, she's in trouble, her credit is zero, you don't think a job would help? I mean, same thing with the background check. The only thing that I want to take is my check at the end of the pay cycle. Okay. Now, because all of the staff at the company are white, they're likely to receive internal referrals from those they know or have been friends with, a group that is overwhelmingly white. So now, not only is their generational wealth being passed down, but there's also generational opportunity. I just made that up. And it just keeps you from shooting your shot, right? And you know, you've heard that saying, sometimes it's not what you know, it's who you know, okay? And sometimes because you know who you know, um, hmm, how can I say this? Might make it that, you know, a scenario where you may not be the most qualified person. Now, do you think that that's fair? Apparently they do. Now, this system would certainly result in discrimination against minorities, even if none of the policies are explicitly racist. Hiring managers and executives would likely say something like, um, well, we obviously are not racist. It just turns out that we tend to see and hire white candidates, even though you know we hire candidates based on merit. Now, if you are doing good work, then they want to think that you have a great chance at getting the promotion, but you will actually have an even better chance if you're white, if they were really just looking at people based on merit, then you should have a good chance, okay, of getting that promotion. But that's not really what they're looking at what they'll say, but it's not really what they're looking at. But regardless of whether the staff are explicitly racist or not, they have created a racist system. Systematic racism is set, is a set of practices that discriminate on the basis of race. Systemic racism is a system that has racism inherent in how it operates. So systematic racism is relatively easy to fix if you care to try. On the other hand, systemic racism, um, it requires a a deeper level of thinking. And I also think it demands including a racially diverse set of decision makers because a diverse set of people can more easily identify racism in the systems that include racism within it whether that racism is intentional or not. I had a friend, you know, you you have friends of all different backgrounds, colors, ethnicities, and this friend particularly that I'm speaking of was a white woman. I was experiencing discrimination at one of the places of employment. 
she didn't work there with me at the time, but she was familiar with a few people that did. And I gave her examples of certain ways that I was treated at this place. She didn't believe me. And it was one of those situations where it's like, are you sure you're not being overly sensitive? I don't know. I've never known them to be that way. Well, <laughs> you wouldn't. You're white. And I feel like, I don't know. It just makes you feel frustrated to have to prove that you're being discriminated against as if you, the person who's been discriminated against, don't know the difference. Like, why would we want to call that out if it didn't exist or if it wasn't happening? We don't want attention in that way. Okay? We really don't. So final question, how does this apply to policing, right? Good question, says the author of this article that I, I got all this information from. But he says, I'm not qualified to answer that question. He said, I'm a word guy, not a policing expert, right? But he goes on to say, if there is one question, the death of black men in police custody, you know, might bring up, and the protests that we all saw take place last year as a result of everything that was going on, it might make you ask, you know, that question, you know, it might make you wonder how does systemic or systematic racism apply to policing? The system is the problem and fixing the problem requires changing the system, not just the procedures, and that basically is what is being fought for right now. This next song was featured on a soundtrack in a 1995 film about a former Marine turned teacher who became an advocate for some inner city students who were not only struggling in the classroom, but they were struggling in life as well. And not only did they win her heart, but she also won theirs. Now it samples the chorus and instrumentation of a 1976 Stevie Wonder song, which made reference to the squandering of the present by nostalgically living in the past. The song was listed at number 85 on Billboard's greatest songs of all time and was the number one best-selling single of 1995 on the U.S. Billboard. Now, it went on to win a lot of other accolades, such as being ranked number 38 on VH1's 100 Greatest Songs of Hip Hop. It received a Grammy for Best Rap Solo Performance, two MTV Video Music Awards for Best Rap Video from a Film, and a Billboard Music Award for the song. Now, Stevie Wonder's song was entitled Pastime Paradise. But here's Coolio with his smash hit, Gangsta's Paradise. And when we come back, I will get into today's topic. Tell me what this 
I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left Cause I've been blasting and laughing so long that Even my mama thinks that my mind is gone But I ain't never crossed a man that didn't deserve it Me be treated like a punk, you know that's unheard of You better watch how you're talking and where you're walking Or you and your homies might be lying and chalk I really hate the trip, but I gotta low as they croak, I see myself in the pistol smoke Fool, I'm the kind of cheater Little homies wanna be like on my knees in the night Saying prayers in the street light They got me facing I can't live a normal life I was raised by the state So I gotta be there with the hood team Too much television watching Got me chasing dreams I'm an educated fool with money on my mind Got my tin in my hand and a gleam in my eye I'm a loped out gangster set tripping banker And my homies is down so don't arouse my anger Fool, death ain't nothing but a heartbeat away I'm living life do a die What can I say? I'm 23 now but will I live to see 24 The way things are going I don't know
Okay, beautiful people. So today I will be talking with you about cultural competency or sensitivity, as it may be known in some circles, versus cultural humility. Now I'm learning more and more as a new mental health advocate, the importance of staying current when it comes to the language that is used to describe certain practices or terminology. It is ever evolving in the spirit of inclusivity. So I would like to mention before I continue that if you are looking for a therapist or a life coach, these terms can help you to decide what it is that you need in a therapist or life coach. And the website, My Wellbeing, has a little test that you can take to make the search less daunting. After all, we do need to be our own advocates, you dig? We need to know for ourselves what kind of help we may be in search of so that we can, you know, make the most of it. That goes for you, and it most definitely goes for me. 20 years ago, when I was diagnosed with major depression and anxiety disorder, specifically agoraphobia, I did not know that we had a choice. I just went with someone that was appointed to me by the hospital, for instance. But in both cases, I was blessed and ended up with two wonderful therapists. But now I know that I have more of a say to ensure that my next therapist, should I choose to have one, will be all that I need them to be. Now, what is cultural competence? Well, the National Institute of Mental Health defines cultural competency as the behaviors, attitudes, and skills that allow a healthcare provider to work effectively with different cultural groups. Basically, it means that if your therapist or coach has a different background or identity than you, they could attempt to learn about your background, identity, and culture in order to provide you with the appropriate care. However, the issue with cultural competency stems from the implication that one could achieve competence in another culture and then be content to stop there. So, for instance, you can't just read Alex Haley's Roots and then think that you can understand what it felt like to be enslaved. It could be understood as gaining just enough knowledge about another culture that you are merely competent and it implies that cultures are monolithic. You know, like Black people all look alike. Um, now, if that were the case, then I wouldn't be able to tell the difference between my mother and my father. Okay, see how ridiculous that sounds? I need y'all to stop that, all right? We don't all look alike. If you put 10 of us in the line, I'm telling you, we do not look alike, all right? But that's kind of a racist point of view but we're not monolithic, you know, we're not all the same, so it is untrue. So knowing about one community does not make us culturally competent about all communities. And additionally, communities are dynamic and they change over time. All kinds of assumptions can be made based on a limited perception of community. For instance, I know about the Cabbage Patch, the Running Man and the Dougie, but I'm pretty certain that I should not be entering any dance competitions, and I'm Black. But don't assume that I can dance just because I am. I mean, I can definitely do a mean two-step, though. Mm -hmm, I can. So what is now being understood is that you cannot possibly become competent 
in another culture because you do not have a lived experience. But more importantly, it's not enough to be merely competent. I'm learning this every single day because like last season, I was talking about cultural competency. And as I, you know, um, participate in more, um, you know, reading and as well as like webinars that are offered by like NAMI or Mental Health America, these are all the things that I'm like learning. So it's, it's really very interesting and obviously very important to stay on top of these kinds of things, just, just the terminology in and of itself, right? Now, what is cultural humility? Cultural humility is a process of reflection, I love that word, and lifelong inquiry that involves self-awareness of personal and cultural biases, as well as awareness and sensitivity to significant cultural issues of others. The idea of humility comes from the fact that the focus should not be on competence or confidence, and it recognizes that the more someone is exposed to cultures different from their own, the more often they will realize how much they don't know about others. Now, in a 1998 article on which most of the discussion about cultural competency versus cultural humility is based, Dr. Melanie Turvalon and Dr. Jan Murray Garcia suggested not only that cultural competency be distinguished from cultural humility, but that cultural humility was a more suitable goal than cultural competence. They defined three points that described cultural humility. Now, a lifelong commitment to self-evaluation and self-critique is the first one. One never arrives at a point where they are done learning. Even our former first lady, Michelle Obama, who has a book entitled Becoming, encourages us to recognize that we are always growing. We're always evolving. No animal that you see today, for instance, looks as it did millions of years ago. Why? Because they evolved. And they did so because they needed to eat in order to survive. So then we as people need to evolve. Or as Sierra the singer would say, level up. Therefore, people must be humble, flexible, and bold enough to look at themselves critically and desire to learn more. All right. Secondly, there needs to be a desire to fix power imbalances where none ought to exist. We have to recognize that each person brings something different to the table and see the value of each person. When practitioners interview clients, the client is the expert on their own life, their symptoms and strengths. You know, like when you go to the doctor because you've been experiencing symptoms like let's say dizziness, shortness of breath, etc., you have to understand that you know your body, kings, you know your body, queens, you know what you are feeling and you cannot allow the doctor to dismiss or minimize what you are feeling. They may have gone to medical school, but you live in your body and therefore you must advocate. You must advocate for yourself. Don't count yourself out. You belong in the room too. You dig? Now, while a therapist has knowledge that the client does not, let's understand that the client also has a body of knowledge and understanding 
outside the scope of the practitioner. Both must collaborate and learn from each other, okay, in order to achieve the best possible outcomes. And third, you have to aspire to develop partnerships with people and groups who advocate for others, okay? Now, though individuals can create positive change, communities and groups can also have a profound impact on systems. We cannot individually commit to self-evaluation and fixing power imbalances without advocating within the larger organizations in which we participate. Cultural humility, by definition, is larger than our individual selves, and we must advocate for it systemically. So why is having a culturally uh, competent or, or culturally um, humble healthcare provider so important? Well, as the world becomes increasingly diverse and multicultural, healthcare providers have been encouraged to become aware of cultural differences and their impact on health. So your culture can play a huge part in your mental and physical health, your views of mental health treatment, the way you communicate your needs to your healthcare providers, the way you interpret communication from your healthcare providers, the way you might be treated by healthcare providers. All those things, you know, uh, are impacted because of your culture and what your beliefs are. Now, the National Association of Social Workers states in their code of ethics that social workers should demonstrate understanding of culture and its function in human behavior and society, recognizing the strengths that exist in all cultures, demonstrate knowledge that guides practice with clients of various cultures, and be able to demonstrate skills in the provision of culturally informed services that empower marginalized individuals and groups while also taking action against oppression, racism, discrimination, and inequities, and acknowledging their own personal privilege. They need to be able to demonstrate awareness and cultural humility by engaging in critical self-reflection, recognizing clients as experts of their own culture, committing to lifelong learning, and holding institutions accountable for advancing cultural humility. And, they need to obtain education about and demonstrate understanding of the nature of social diversity and oppression with respect to race, ethnicity, national origin, color, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, expression, age, marital status, political belief, religion, immigration status, and mental or physical ability. There's a lot to consider, right? So Village, in closing, a therapist or coach who is not committed to the components of cultural humility, a lifelong commitment to self-evaluation self and self-critique, or a desire to fix power imbalances, or that has an aspiration to develop partnerships with people and groups who advocate for others, might not have the mindset to provide the best care possible for someone from a different background. Now, Village, have you all ever checked out the movie Brown Sugar with Kay Biggs and Sanaa Lathan? Well, that is where this next song from my musical jukebox comes from. 
Now, in my opinion, this beautiful African-American singer is totally underrated. What I appreciate about her music are the many themes that are placed within her lyrics that inspire self-love and awareness, healing and restoration. And just a simple fact that she is more about making music that evokes feelings of love for oneself and the need for self-reflection so that we can live our best lives, releasing the pain that we hold on to, which can ultimately cause more harm than good. You know, she's not about like the money, the awards and all that, right? And this song is certainly no exception. Here's India Ari with Get It Together. To your heart without breaking your skin No one has the power to hurt you like your kin Kept it inside, didn't tell no one else Didn't even wanna admit it to yourself And now your chest burns and your back aches From 15 years of holding the pain Burn 
Because now the years are showing up on your face But you'll never be happy And you'll never be whole Until you see the beauty in growing old You wanna heal your body Okay, beautiful people. So here is our first inspirational story for the season, and it's called The Coldest Winter. Here goes. It was one of the coldest winters and many animals were dying because of the cold. The porcupines, realizing the situation, decided to group together, keep each other warm. This was a great way to protect themselves from cold and keep each of them warm but the quills of each one wounded their closest companions. After a while, they decided to distance themselves, but they too began to die due to the cold. So they had to make a choice. Either accept the quills of their companions or choose death. Wisely, they decided to go back to being together. They learned to live with the little wounds that were caused by the close relationship with their companions in order to receive the warmth of their togetherness. This way, they were able to survive. So usually kings and queens, there's a moral, you know, to the story, but in this case, none was offered. And so I took the time to think about what this story meant for me, and I invite you all to do the same. No matter what kind of relationship that you're in, there are going to be good times, bad times. There will be arguments and disagreements because you are different from one another and you come with a different set of experiences or as I like to call them, emotional blueprints. And it causes you to think and behave and feel the way that you do about certain things. But at the end of the day, everyone in that relationship has to make a decision to be in that relationship come what may even when things are not always going the way that you would like for them to go. Relationships are a two-way street. Let me say that again. 
Relationships are a two-way street, okay? And at this age in my life, I refuse to be in any one-way street relationships. Any, doesn't matter to me who you are. If I feel that the relationship is a one-way street, I don't participate in it. I've done that enough in my life and I'm getting older now, so I don't have the patience to continue to deal with people who think that only they matter while you're left out in the cold. No, ma'am, no, sir. And I guess that I just don't want people in my life who will decide to be there. Excuse me, I'm sorry, I want, I'm so sorry. I want people in my life who, you know, even if there are so-called quills, right? Where there is some kind of discomfort or they feel a little bit uncomfortable, that they'll choose the relationship. Okay. And I think everybody out there wants that, that they choose the relationship, that they choose to be in relationship with you. All right. So that we can all stay warm together. Now, the American band Cool and the Gang made some of my favorite songs. And this one right here definitely might cause you to stop what you're doing right now so that you can bust a move <laughs> like I'm about to do. It was originally released on their Something Special album in 1981, and it was certified gold by the Recording Industry Association of America. The song hit the top 10 of the U.S. pop and R&B charts and Billboard in early 1982. Now, if they can make you want to celebrate, well, then you should have no problem with what they inspire you to do in this song. Here's Cool in the Gang with Get Down On It. Get down, tell me, oh, what you gonna do? Do you wanna get down? Oh, what you gonna do? You wanna get down? Oh, what you gonna do? You wanna get down? Tell me. Ah, 
you gonna do it if you really won't take a chance by standing on the wall? It's not the way I hoped 
Well, beautiful people, that was Save the Best for Last by Vanessa Williams. And it is the third single from her second studio album, The Comfort Zone. The song was written by Phil Gladstone, Wendy Waldman, and John Lind. And it is considered her signature song. I just love that song. The song was about a young female admirer of a single man who stands by and watches as the object of her desire goes through years of dating before he finally unexpectedly decides to initiate a relationship with her. Now the lyrics redemptive themes resonated with her own story as she had put together a successful music career following her earlier Miss America resignation scandal. The song was a commercial and critical success and it topped the Billboard Hot 100 chart for five weeks and was ranked fourth on Billboard's top 100 hits of 1992's list, becoming the biggest success of her music career. Way to bounce back, Queen. Well, kings and queens, we have come to the end of our first show of the season. I do hope that the information that was provided will be of help to you. Remember, it is always a good idea to do your own research, no matter what the topic is, especially if your life is involved. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, and I look forward to being with you all again every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard. Please be sure to follow Village Mentality on Instagram at villagementality.ck, Mary, and on Facebook 
at Village Mentality, the podcast. You can also catch episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and Breaker. And there is a link to each episode available on Instagram and on Facebook, as well as theawakenedlounge.com backslash village hyphen mentality. Now just remember that God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people, and here's to brighter days.